How are you doing today? <laughs> Fine. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm tired. Yeah. And I said I have to prepare myself to not take yawns personally. I'm just you a sleepy yawn. girl. Yeah. Which for people who listen, like most people listen without video, you're not seeing me yawn. Well... <laughs> Yesterday, I noticed when we were recording, you were talking like this when you were telling your story. Because <laughs> you were t- yawning as you talked instead of like yawning and then continuing. It takes a lot to get me excited about life. I also do think I have ADHD. I've thought about bringing my knitting on the episodes where you tell the story. Mm-hmm. Because it does help me focus a lot. But then I'm like, is that weird to be knitting? No. Would it be distracting to you? No, I think I would. It would take me a while to get used to it to know that you're listening. I, I think, think I you would, would get immediately really conscious. I disagree. I think you would immediately notice that I focus better. Oh, we should try it next time. <laughs> I, I'll bring it next time. Yeah. I. It's astounding how much more I can like pay attention. Yeah. Hi, I'm Maggie, and I'm Sarah, and this is Mad, Mad Woman, Woman in, in the, the Attic. attic. Ho, 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 ho. Let's, Let's go, girls. Okay. My question for the day. Okay. I would say one of the most common notes, things that we hear from people who listen to the podcast is that they love our friendship, Mm -hmm. but also that when we talk about our groups of friends, Mm -hmm. that it sounds like we have like really amazing friends, which we do. Yeah. I think making friends as an adult is very difficult. How can you make friends at our age or older? I mean, I think it really takes, which I know is hard for a lot of people, but it really takes you just asking. I feel like it's similar to like dating when you get older. Our friends who want to date to find a partner, you have to be a lot more explicit about like, hey, this is what I'm looking for. Yeah. And I think the same is kind of with friendships. When I moved down here, I basically just DM'd Janelle on Slack because we, this is a friend that we worked with when I first moved down here because all of y'all were friends. I was the newbie. So I just DM'd her and was like, hey, I'm new. I would love to hang out. (laughs) And I was like, I'm just, I made the decision that I was like going to be obnoxious to some extent about it. And luckily I'm also fun and cool. And so people were like, yeah, we want to hang out with you. But I really made the active decision to request to hang out, which can be scary, especially when you're like a new person going into a place where everybody knows each other. Yeah, that can be really hard. And then also like I did Bumble BFF. Yeah. And one of my friends from that, moved away but we still stay in touch and when she's in town she lets me know and we hang out and my other friend is just a few blocks away yeah and she's a lovely friend that I'm close with and so just that alone two friends that was nice and then I just shoved them with my other friends yeah not here but the last time I moved to a new city Mm -hmm. I met like my two friends there through Bumble BFF. Yeah. And it went great. I really got along with them. I mean, I'm a chronic new kid. Yeah. (laughs) I've moved so many times in my life. But I feel like this year I probably have more friends than I've ever had in my adult life and Mm -hmm. better friends. Like I have like really amazing friendships. And I really was like my rule of thumb for the whole year has been I'm going to say – yes to every social thing I can do. If someone invites me to something, I'm going. Even if I don't want to, even if it's like a little uncomfortable, not something I'm like really into, I'm just going to show up. And I am tired at the end of that year. 
yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. But it was a really good experience because like once I like had like the foundation of like, okay, these are friends where I like don't have to go to every single thing. Mm-hmm. But for the first like six months, I really did. And it definitely has paid off. Mm-hmm. I have learned to kind of like cast a wide net at first and then be okay with being like, these are the people I've met that really feel like friends I want to spend a lot of time with. And that's okay. Like Mm -hmm. to just meet a bunch of people, be in a bunch of social settings, meet as many people as you can. And then the people you really connect with be like, right. Hey, do you want to spend some time? Like, do you want to hang out? Do you Mm -hmm. want to spend time together? I also think it goes a long way, especially with the girls to be like, we're just clicking. Yeah. Like, I feel like people love to hear that. Uh And like the people you really like to be like, are we? Oh my God. Are we falling in love? Yeah. To really say, like, I really like you. People don't want to do that with friends. Yeah. Which it's like something you would do dating to be like, oh, right. I really like you. This is going well. Yeah. With friends, people don't say that. And it's like, I think I it would goes a long way to be often. like, oh my God, are we, are we so compatible? Yeah. Should we be besties? Yeah. I also think connecting friends that you really like, that you think would like each other. Oh, yeah. I did for like two years, just force friends together. Yeah. Like even when I moved here... You were my closest friend, Mm -hmm. and I knew a lot of your friends. You are my closest friend. (laughs) I mean, at the the time I moved here, yeah, you were also my closest friend. (laughs) But I knew a lot of your friends, yeah, or was already friends. Like we had a lot of mutual friends. And my only friend that you didn't know very well was Jaina. Mm-hmm. And I kind of was like very regularly like, you guys are both Enneagram 4s. You guys both love art. I just kept being like, you love all the same yeah. things. Just be besties. And, now and you then guys I was are like, like best I the fucking group text. <laughs> yeah, you guys are best friends now. Yeah. Even like the one group of friends we have, it was like Maggie went out of town one weekend. And I was really like, it was like the first weekend you went out of town and I was really nervous. Mm-hmm. That I was like gonna be really lonely and not handle it well. And then like you came back into town and I was like, I have 20 new friends for us to hang out with. But it was just because I was like, okay, well, this is probably gonna be awkward. And it was like there was a lot of stuff that was like kind of awkward to show up to. I think also having like diversifying the types of friends you have. Yeah. I hung out with Elena yesterday, and that's a friend that I don't get to see all that often. Yeah. And but when we do, Mm -hmm. it's like it's really good. Yeah. Like there was a lot of opportunities for me to hang out with people this week. And she was one where it's like, I'm not saying yes to a lot of those things, but this is a friend that I'm like, okay, this is someone I really enjoy spending time with that when the opportunity arises to spend time with that person, I'm going to take advantage of it. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people think that like close friendships have to be people you see all the time Mm -hmm. or you have to have the same friend group all the time. And that is where most of my close friendships are. But there's also, I think like it's important to have those other ones that you don't necessarily have to have a super shared friend circle. Yeah. I think some people kind of really emphasize the idea of finding a group, which I do think is essential. But I think sometimes people then miss out on the opportunity to have these really good, like, one-on-one substantial friendships. Yeah, and I also think you can have, like, really... It doesn't have to be a superficial friendship. Yeah. Just because you don't see each other all the time. Yeah. There are varying degrees of friendships. Mm -hmm. I think there's different things you can get out of different friendships. And that's okay. Yeah. And healthy. Mm -hmm. I also... This is a very specific, having just moved this year, if you are dating, if you are single and dating, friends first. Don't move to a new place and focus on getting a boyfriend. Get friends first, then start dating. Like, don't date. 
focus on friends. Yeah. For months until you have friends. Mm-hmm. Even if it's really important to you to get a partner. Yeah. To have a partner to be dating. Friends first. Yeah. Agree. It's like my big rule, rule mm-hmm. of thumb. Because dating is going to be in and out and in and out until you find someone you maybe click with if you're looking for that. Yes. And you need some sort of stability. You need friends. Throughout those kinds of things. Even if the just, first like, date you go on is the love of your life and right. you marry them, then you're so focused on that person. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to just, you're in a new place. You're probably just going to become mm-hmm. friends with their friends. You need your own friends. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who want partners, which is totally fine, think that that's going to be the thing that makes them feel the most not lonely, the most welcome, the most comfortable in a place, especially if it's a new place. Yeah. Gosh, I just feel like that leads to more isolation and loneliness, even if you do find a partner, if you haven't yeah. like, built up Honestly, those friend Especially circles. if you find a yeah. partner. And especially if like your friend circles end up being just their friends. Yeah. And then you lose that group too if you break up. Yeah. That it just is going to lead to heartbreak. Even if you don't break up, I think it kind of sets you up if you find, like you move to a new city, you find the love of your life really quickly. They have great friends, their family lives there, you're well connected, you have community, whatever. Even if it works out, Mm -hmm. you don't have anything that's not through that, funneled through them. And even if you don't break up, Mm -hmm. it like puts a weird pressure on the Mm -hmm. relationship early on if you're looking to that person Mm -hmm. to fill all of your needs for community, for friendship, Mm -hmm. for a romantic relationship. And then as time goes on, like you don't have friends that were just yours that you can talk to. It's all their connections. So Mm -hmm. like friends first, no matter what happens, that is always better. Yes. I also think like it really can help early in dating to not be like hyper focused on those dating relationships because you're not looking to them to fill like that community human yes, interaction you can focus need. more on finding like someone who is actually a good match for you and yeah. not just like filling a void yeah because we do need community we do yeah. need to not feel lonely like psychologically that is I think a very underestimated human need for development, like genuine healthy development. If you're allowing that void to continue to be a void, then you're going to be looking for all the wrong reasons. And I think that leads to potential like codependency. Yes. Because this is like, if that's the only person you're really focusing on, like you're going to naturally start developing a codependent relationship, which will naturally be unhealthier. It's not going to be good. I have watched a lot of people in my life do this, like Mm -hmm. at our age, where I, especially like at 30, even if you're not moving to a new place, like let's say you have a life change or your friends move away or whatever. Mm -hmm. I have seen so many people feel this void Mm -hmm. and then be like it's just time for me to settle down everyone else has is getting married everyone else has kids I just need to find a partner and then I won't feel lonely Mm -hmm. and they they just completely neglect for years sometimes like Mm -hmm. completely neglect the effort to find friends because you're so focused on finding a romantic partner Mm -hmm. so like just commit to like three months of like, I'm going to find friends yeah. and then I'll date. Yeah. The romantic partnerships, they'll be there. And I am a huge believer in like, you may not find somebody. Yeah. Whether it's because you realize you're great romantic and you're like, maybe that it's not just for me or maybe you do want a partner, which is fair, but you just don't find someone. Right. Years you of your life can pass. to be happy and have community and not base your entire life's happiness on your ability to find a partner. Yeah. 
because so many people want a partner and remain single sometimes for their entire lives because they don't find someone that is like fits their lifestyle, someone they love, especially if they're really determined on keeping their standards high. I think a lot of people settle just to fill that void. But if they're really determined to find like the right match, they may not. I think that like even people who really want a partner need to accept that that is still a potential reality and that you need to make sure you have a community around you and the people around you so that if that ends up being your reality, you will be okay. So happy and have people in your life. Sign up for a class. Yeah. Go to events. Mm-hmm. You're going to feel awkward. Yeah. Introduce yourself to people. Mm-hmm. Talk to people. I actually, one thing that has really helped me like f- for my whole adult life is mm-hmm. being willing to go to things alone. Yeah. And be uncomfortable because I think a lot of times mm-hmm. if you have a buddy and you always go with your buddy, mm-hmm. you're not really meeting new people. Yeah. You're not really like putting yourself out mm-hmm. there. You're just clinging to the person you know. Yeah. When I lived in South Carolina, I signed up for a co-working space and they had events like every mm-hmm. week. And I was like, I'm going to go to one every single week. Mm-hmm. And I would go alone. A bunch of them already knew each other. They mm-hmm. were all friends. And I, a lot of them were like older than me, had kids. And I like walked in and was just like, hi, I'm Sarah. And it became a running joke that the owner of the co-working office every time she would run into me there. She would be like, oh, is this, do you guys know each other? Yeah. And I would be like, in the sense that like we met two minutes ago, yes. Right. And she would be like, Sarah, why do I always think like that you have like yeah. come with these people? Uh-huh. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just Gabby. What, yeah. what can I do? But I would just kind of like pick people and be like, hi, mm-hmm. I'm Sarah. Who are you? What do you do? Yeah. You know, and that's how I made outside of our agency that where I met you and Um, other of our friends after that, after the layoffs, (laughs) I ended up getting a membership at a co-working space. And it was like, I just went alone. I didn't know anybody there. And it was at some point the table behind me was a group of people and they started talking about the election, like politics. Yeah. And they were like, fuck Trump. And I'm like, these are my people. And so I ended up, I think I just turned around and was like, I totally agree with you Uh, or something. Yeah. And now Elena, that's how I met yeah. her. She wasn't in that group I talked to, but I met her through that co-working space. Yeah. My good friend Sky I met was in that group and one of the ones I talked mm-hmm. to through that. What do you like to do? Like if you think like what are activities I would want to do with my friends? Mm-hmm. Go do those things alone. Yeah. The people who are going to do them with you are there. Right. If you like sports, join yeah. a club. If, if, yeah. if you like going to like workout classes, go to a workout class. Mm-hmm. If you like going to an art class, go to an art class. Or if even group therapy. My therapy was, therapy. my therapist was talking about me potentially joining a group because she's like, you know, there are people who have these same kind of fears and issues yes. with you. She's like, I actually have a client that's like very similar to you. Have you ever thought about going to group therapy to feel like you're not quite alone in some of these things? Yeah. And um, she says that, you know, a l- group that she led all stay in touch, yeah. you know, after. Which makes sense. AA is a community that like mm-hmm. people make really close friendships. Yeah stay in touch their whole lives. Mm-hmm. When you think about like, what 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 do I want my life to look like? What kind of people do I want? Those people mm-hmm. are already doing those things. Yeah. Go to the spaces that you want to be at with your yeah. friends. Go alone. Mm-hmm. Put yourself out there. I do think a lot of people have like social anxiety, yeah. which is completely valid and fair. Mm-hmm. And I struggled with that for a really long time. And the more you just kind of do it and realize like, oh, these are just people. Yeah. It really kind of surprised me how quickly I got over it mm-hmm. because I had so many positive experiences Mm -hmm. and it really got easier after that ho 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 story time
Elena also told me yesterday that she sings along and she likes not having a jingle. Several people have said know, that to I me. Think we just need to keep like, it. I think we just need to keep it. Yeah. If we ever get management, yeah. they'll be like, we got to get a jingle. And, and we'll be like, be like, no, fuck no. you. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> Actually, we're going to do this. <laughs> yeah. I'm so excited for this one. Yay. Yay. It's 1982. Odd things begin happening to a formerly average suburban family. Their young daughter, seemingly in a trance, announces the presence of a poltergeist. (laughs) It is, of course, passed off as a child's imagination. But the next morning, a glass of milk breaks. Furniture moves. There does seem to be a visitor. And it's almost... Playful? The way it fiddles with household items. But things take a sinister turn during a thunderstorm when their daughter goes missing. Taken by the invisible visitor. This is a story... Or rather, the plot of the 1982 movie, The Poltergeist. (laughs) This movie is, of course, fiction pulled from the mind of Steven Spielberg. But as we all know, truth is often stranger than fiction. Just two years after the premiere of this movie, papers and news stations would swirl with stories of an average suburban family in Columbus, Ohio, plagued by strange happenings eerily similar to The Poltergeist. Mm -hmm. These happenings seem to center around their adopted teenage daughter, Tina Resch. Multiple people have told Tina's story, or rather, parts of it. Every reporter, every friend or family member interviewed, every investigator, each of them eliminates or emphasizes the details that support their foundational belief about Tina. There was Dr. William Roll, who lived with the Resch family to investigate, literally for the purpose of investigating. Certain this case was a case of teenage telekinesis. But he was a parapsychologist who already believed in telekinesis. Of course, he thought that Tina was the real thing. Yeah. Then there was James Randi, who thought Tina was a fraud encouraged by parapsychologists like Dr. Roll. But Randi was a professional debunker of sorts, a scientific skeptic who founded a committee specifically to challenge paranormal claims. Of course, he thought Tina was a fraud. There were her adoptive parents who believed she was possessed by a demon, but they were staunchly Christian and thought Tina was troubled. Of course, they blamed demons. And then there were her long-lost biological relatives who not only claimed they saw these telekinetic events, but that this gift ran in the family. Were they telling the truth? Or were they basking in the sudden connection to a mini-celebrity? Then, in 1992, after the news had settled and Tina had escaped her adoptive parents, Tina's daughter died and a whole new layer was added to Tina's story. So who was Tina? A true telekinetic? A sociopathic fraud and murderer? A victim of a broken foster system who desperately needed attention? Or just a child exploited by adults for personal gain? Today, I'll share details. All of the above. All of the above. (laughs) Today, I'll share details from each of these perspectives so that you may come to your own conclusion. Okay. Mm -hmm. Fun. Fun. (laughs) This is a good one. Yeah. And I'm going to have to be as unbiased as possible for part of it. And then I'll go into some of the stuff where I'm like, there's no way I can be unbiased about this because this is insane. We don't need to be unbiased. No. But I want, I want this the first... This is not a podcast of hard-hitting journalism. Well, the reason I want to be unbiased is because literally every single yeah. thing was a different perspective. Yeah, I like that we're doing the And entirely eliminated, like, things that would have proven them wrong. Because there's evidence for and against every position. Yeah. All of those already had an idea of what the answer was. Right. And they then went they in biased. Told that story. Yeah. So I want to tell all of the different So options. we're going to go in unbiased. Right. 
because we're better than them. And then I'll go biased because I do have and an opinion. And then we're going to talk shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Tina Resch had been abandoned by her biological mother at 10 months old. She was thrown into the foster system and eventually adopted by the Resch family, a family known for being foster parents. Some sources said like literally hundreds of kids went through their house. Red flag. Yeah. So much so that they'd once been given a new spotlight about it. Um, Red flag. Mm-hmm. They officially adopted Tina when she was two and a half years old. But this was not the heartwarming adoption story you see on the Good News Instagram accounts. Her new parents were less than warm, allegedly resorting to violence and isolation at the smallest inconvenience. Mm-hmm. At age 12, Tina told her parents that her adoptive brother was molesting her. Mm-hmm. Their response was to slap her in the face and tell her to stop seeking attention. That brother, by the way, was later a convicted sex offender. Of so. course. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. When objects started moving and breaking. That makes me so mad about fostering and adopting, like... To take advantage of yeah. kids that have already mm-hmm. had it so tough. Right. Because it's such a good thing you can do. Yeah. It's such a great way to, like, have yeah. a family. Mm-hmm. People that do that make me so Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, people who have biological children and do those things also make me mad. Right. Why have kids? Yeah. If you aren't going to love them. Okay, that's all. Yeah. Agree. When objects started moving and breaking around Tina when she was 14, the first response was to call a priest for an exorcism. Ugh. In the 80s? In the 80s. This was, okay, so some background is like the 80s is when a lot of the movies like Poltergeist, Satanic Panic, which I'm surprised, honestly, that that's not a bigger part of her story because of that atmosphere that was going on in the 80s. Do you think people still do exorcisms now? Yeah. That's so... Mm-hmm. The Catholics? Yeah, probably. Obviously, the exorcism did not stop the strange events. Then, reporters began to arrive. Many sources leave out the little detail that Tina's mother, Joan, called a Columbus dispatch reporter at first. It was this reporter, Mike Harden, who caught the infamous photo of a phone flying across Tina's lap. Which... That's what I'm looking at. Yes. Yeah. Other media outlets caught wind, of course, and when the news articles and TV spotlights began flooding in, Tina was officially dubbed the Columbus Poltergeist Kid. Okay, cool. We love yeah. a name. Right. Did end up with, you know, bullying at school and other things as a result, obviously. Because Who would bully are... the Columbus Poltergeist Kid? She, she How said, dumb do you like, have to be? And so I watched, um, there's a documentary that I'll mention called Demons and Saviors that okay. came out this year about Tina. And she is on it a lot and mentions that, like, kids would, like, try to push her downstairs. Why? Like, to see if she would. Because she was weird and different. <laughs> I wonder if they ever, like, tested her. Like, if she yeah. would use her powers. Mm-hmm. Yuck. Lots of tests just in general. So it didn't take long for these stories to reach the ears of the curious, the skeptical, and the believers, and everyone had their own hypothesis. Parapsychologists and the others believed Tina's environment was enough to cause the phenomena of teenage telekinesis. Tina's story isn't the only one like this. In fact, several famous poltergeist cases center around troubled or abused teenage girls. One such person who believed in this phenomena was Dr. William Roll. I'm going to have to say that. Luckily, I'll only say Dr. Roll from here on out, but man, that's 
really hard to say. We should just call him B-Roll because of B-roll. Bill Roll. Yeah. People we will now Bill. be calling him B-Roll. B-Roll. Okay. Uh, was B-Roll, a parapsychologist set on proving the existence of telekinesis. He believed Tina could send voltage from her brainstem to move objects. Interesting. Yeah. Another believer was Kelly Powers, an intuitive guide introduced to Tina by the reporter Mike Harden, who caught the photo. Then there was James Randi, an investigator for the Committee of Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. PSYCOP is what, like, the shortened version that they call it. He's also a magician. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So this is making me think of Stranger Things, because that's in mm-hmm. the 80s. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if it was, like, based on these stories. Maybe. Kelly Powers, in the Hulu docuseries I mentioned, describes Randy when he was waving a fake check in front of the Rush family, saying he would give them money if he couldn't prove them wrong. So he's like... The 80s were such a weird time. Yeah. I just keep saying everything you're saying. I'm like, it's so crazy. Yeah. I know my mom is probably listening to this right now and went, yup. <laughs> what a weird time to be alive. Yeah. We really dodged a bullet being born in the early 90s. Right. Yeah. Joan Resch, so her Tina's adoptive mom, was pissed at the attack on her character. And I was like, you know, there are other things you should be kind of pissed about. Yeah. As far as attacking your character more so than this. <laughs> that was me being biased. Stop it. Stop it. So Joan called a press conference so that they might show proof and finally put the matter of truth to rest. But one hour turned into two, then three, then four. Finally, nine hours into the press conference, when the cameras were supposedly turned off, a lamp fell on Tina. What Tina didn't know is that one camera was still rolling and it caught her pulling the lamp over. You can see in the video, she like leans on the arm and puts her hand under the lampshade and pulls it on herself. Some, like several reporters and Randy, believe this to be proof that Tina was a fraud. A believable claim. Yeah. Others, like Powers, B-Roll, Tina's mother, and Tina herself, claim she did it only because she wanted the reporters to leave. And after nine hours, it's not an unbelievable claim either. Yeah. B-roll <laughs> had for a while been living, like I mentioned, with the Rush family, like moved in with them, which is weird. So weird. Bias again. Moved in. But that's weird no matter what. <laughs> I'm sorry. We already hate the parents. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. They well, let him I live see. with her. Yeah. I already hate them. Yeah. Yeah, you could be biased. <laughs> Massive amounts of footage now exist of Tina recorded by Roll. Which is so weird. It is weird. And like I saw some on oh yeah just come in the live do- in our they house show a lot of it in the documentary and it's mostly of just her laughing with him and stuff so and weird yeah here just come videotape my teenage daughter non-stop and live in our house yeah yeah and while roll claimed he had seen plenty of things happen to make the one faked lamp accident irrelevant to his study none of these events were caught on camera there's one where they're off camera, sort of, and something cl- clatters. And they're like, oh, my God. And Tina's like, I can hear it, but I can't see it anywhere. And it, so everything that happened was off camera. Hmm. But Dr. Roll was determined. So determined, in fact, that he took Tina to his home in North Carolina to continue studying her and running tests. An odd and potentially concerning situation, but one Tina saw as salvation. Oh, no. In North Carolina, Tina... I can't keep my face unbiased. You know me. I have way too many facial expressions. It's just the... You're just reading the facts. Yeah. And I'm... I'm... 
Who? What else am I supposed to think? Right. In North Carolina, Tina met Jeannie Lagle, I think is how you pronounce it, an assistant to Dr. Roll. Jeannie became Tina's 24-7 companion so that they wouldn't miss a thing. They went so far as to go to the bathroom together, hooking ankles beneath the stall wall to ensure Tina was still there. Another odd situation, but one both Jeannie and Tina remember fondly. So much so that they have remained friends ever since. Kelly Powers, still, from what I understand. (laughs) I'm sorry. No. That is so messed up. Yeah. How old was Jeannie? She was still really young. She was still like 14, 15. This all happened in like a pretty His assistant? Oh, Jeannie. Jeannie. No. I think she was a little bit older, but I'm not sure. Like, she was like a professional in the sense that she was working for him. But I don't know. She was young. Yeah. She was not a child. Mm Mm-mm. Can you imagine? No. <laughs> what about sleeping? Did they watch her sleep? They shared a room. Her and Jeannie? Yeah. Yeah. It's giving predator. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Powers, the intuitive guide I mentioned earlier, still, from what I understand, in touch with Tina, it seems, believed Tina needed psychological help in that role and his attempts to trigger the memories of events that caused the telekinesis would cause further harm to Tina by forcing her to relive and reenact the very things that were causing her familial relationships to deteriorate. Still, Tina saw a role as a rescuer. Desperate to produce results for her savior, she was willing to do anything, go under hypnosis, attempt to read the minds of strangers. There was one like audio clip in the docuseries of her almost like trying to read some somebody like she was like, I'm seeing like a bookcase. Do you like to read? Person was like, yeah. And she's like, and roses like, you know how when you can tell like someone is a fraud? Yeah. And the way they're trying to make the things they say so general. So vague. And vague. And so she was like, and roses, I think you like roses. And the person was like, eh. and she was like, maybe they're not your favorite flower, but maybe they mean something to you, you know? Mm, yeah. Uh, because she would just really wanted to prove that, you know, she was who she was, not a fraud, make Dr. Roll proud. But Tina soon felt she was disappointing Roll. And when she was finally sent back home, she obviously felt abandoned. The sense of abandonment worsened when her adoptive parents claimed they wanted nothing to do with her anymore. And so, to avoid being thrown into juvenile detention center, the only apparent option if her family wanted to be rid of her, I'm not sure why, but that's what they said in the docuseries, that to unadopt her, it was just to kind of send her to juvenile detention because they couldn't, I don't think, put her on the streets because she was underage. Yeah. So... I think that's kind of like why that was the only option. So she ran away and married a man when she was 16 years old. He was abusive. (laughs) If you married a 16 year old. Yeah. And she was soon on the run again. But when she became pregnant, she was determined to give her child a better life than the one she had. I was not clear if it was her Her first husband's baby or if she got pregnant after from a rando. I couldn't quite find that info. So, she would not put Amber, her new daughter, up How for adoption. How long were they married? Do you know? Not long. So, she is still underage. Yeah. She she's still away. underage when she runs away, from what I understand. So, she would not put Amber up for adoption. She would provide for her, love her, make sure her life was nothing like Tina's. But it seemed fate had other plans. Ooh. Tina married again to a man named Larry Boyer. She became known as Christina Boyer at that point. 
I think different people know her by different names. I've heard people be like, I have no idea who Tina Resch is because eventually with both stuff that happened later, she was on the news as Christina Boyer when as a child she was Tina Resch. So fate had other plans. Tina married again to Larry Boyer. He also was abusive. Then, all too soon, strange things started happening in her home. More destructive this time. Things flew off walls. Amber's room eventually caught fire, randomly. Worried about Amber's well-being, a social worker advised Christina that staying in the abusive relationship could lead to Ohio State authorities placing Amber in foster care. On a night when Larry was in jail, Tina heeded this advice. (laughs) Just Just happened. Yeah, it's like... (laughs) I bet you were going to say, like, when he was out. Yeah. (laughs) He's at jail. Yeah, he's in jail. Carrying Amber in one arm and a suitcase in the other, she boarded a bus bound for Georgia, determined to start anew near her oldest friend and staunchest believer, Jeannie. Oh. Jeannie concluded that Amber had inherited the powers from Tina. And to this day, her friends claim she loved Amber dearly. One friend, Teresa, who's uh, interviewed in the docuseries, said Tina continually sacrificed her own needs for her daughter, went without food so that Amber could eat, gave her everything she could on a limited income. There's a, a audio clip of her calling in to a Christmas wish thing on a radio station being like, I just escaped an abusive relationship. I don't really have money. I would love to give my daughter a Barbie doll for Christmas. Oh. Like, you know. What did she do for work? Right now, I don't think she is working during all of this, which is part of, you know, the financial yeah. issues. Yeah, her friend Teresa was like, went without food so that Amber could eat, gave her everything. So Teresa said in the docuseries, how could such a loving mo- mother, she argued, kill her own daughter? So just when things oh. seemed to be looking up, <laughs> when the strange events slowed down and Latino was able to secure housing on her own near Jeannie... Tina began to receive calls requesting permission to use her story. Turns out, B-Roll was writing a book. And despite a promise to give Tina a cut of the profits, she never saw a penny. Yeah, always have a contract. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think they knew he was writing it. Like, she started getting these calls from people asking. She's like, why are you asking me this? Who's using my story? Yeah. In protest, Jeannie and Tina decided to write their own book. Tina hoped they would write enough to receive an advance so she could get kind of financially stable, find a job, become self-sufficient. Jeannie paid Tina to like be writing the book because Jeannie was financially stable. So she's like, we're going to write this book. I'll pay you hourly to be writing it. It was like a small amount. It was like five bucks an hour. Wow. Jeannie describes Tina as confident and increasingly stable during this time. Tina felt she herself had a bright future. And in 1992, she even started dating David Heron, a straight-laced and well-mannered man with a child of his own. Love that. Mm-hmm. We love when a woman starts dating straight less straight laced men. <laughs> yeah. Does it turn? Does he kill someone? It was on April tenth, nineteen ninety two. Who among us hasn't been fooled by a nice boy who turned out to be a murderer? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just Oof. me. My bad. <laughs> have you seen that one TikTok of the girl who's like? Thought he was not interested. Turned out he yeah. was just on trial for murder. <laughs> so have. there's still a chance. I actually, after we talked about that date mm-hmm. on the podcast, the number of people who sent me that video was amazing. I, I was like, mm, what does that say about yeah. me? <laughs> that so many people saw this and thought, you know, who's going to think this is funny? 
my friend Sarah. Yeah. And I yeah. did. I did think it yeah. was funny and relatable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so she started dating David in 1992. And on April 10th, 1992. So I don't know exactly when they started dating, but clearly it was not long after. If it's only April when this happens. Yeah. David tells Tina that Amber fell and hit her head when running down the street. He was like, she was running down. I called her to stop. She turned around and fell. Okay. The next day, David says she fell down in the gravel, scraping her face. Ugh. Tina, concerned for Amber's health, called her old adoptive mother, Joan, for advice, who, as she always had before, She said, called Joan I know. for advice? I don't know why, because obviously she said, you're just looking for attention. Why is she even talking to Joan? I didn't understand that part. I want to see you next Tuesday. Right. Jeannie's advice was to just watch Amber for any changes in health or personality, in Demons and Saviors, she looks remorseful as she describes this. She doesn't outright say she wishes she had said something different, but it seems kind of clear in her demeanor that she has some regrets. regrets. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. She should. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because from there, things unfolded very quickly. On April 14th, 1992, so four days after the initial incident, Tina leaves David's home to work on her book with Jeannie, like she does Frequently. Allegedly, she did ask Amber to join her because Jeannie and Amber obviously are also buddies. Like, there's photos of Amber at both Jeannie and Roll's house. How old is Amber at the time? Three. Allegedly, she had asked Amber to join, but the girl had crawled into David's lap with a book. Tina leaves Jeannie's office around five, but soon after, Jeannie receives a call from David, who is trying to reach Tina. You know, pre-cell phones. Maybe not... I don't know when cell phones were started, but they weren't as common, at least. If no, they had already probably been didn't made. have a cell phone if it was yeah. early. So 92. he told Jeannie that he couldn't wake Amber up. Jeannie advises against calling 911 because Tina's on her way home. Um, there Jeannie. was some Jeannie, girl. stuff that suggested that Jeannie was worried that because of Tina's history and unstable financial situation that potentially CPS would be called that but then also that maybe like CPS would be called on her if it was like an injury so when Tina gets home David is standing at the top of the stairs saying he can't wake Amber Tina at first tries to scold him for letting her sleep so long but David clarifies he cannot wake her no matter how hard he tries Tina performs CPR on the way to the hospital hoping to keep her alive she must have been not breathing at that time because she's trying CPR. I couldn't yeah. really, like, understand exactly when the not breathing happened and whatever. If it was coma, it was kind of unclear. So the girl is quickly taken from her in the ER in an attempt to save her. A nurse obviously asks questions about what happened at this point, just being like, okay, so what do we need to know to kind of help her? Tina is like, I was not there. I don't know what happened. And David won't answer. Eventually... A doctor says they're able to get a heartbeat, but there's no brain activity. Soon after, she's pronounced dead. And David can't say anything except, I'm sorry, over and over again. David. Not not far away, Deputy Chief Mike Bradley receives a dispatch call about child abuse. Shortly after, he gets another call. That case is now a homicide. It's all too clear to the medical examiner and deputy that Amber was abused. She was covered in bruises and scrapes. The medical examiner interviewed for this docuseries in 2023 
says he knew exactly who they were talking about when the producers called him for an interview. It's a case he'll never forget, he says. And in the eventual trial, Dr. Stephen Dunton, someone else who was involved in the case, would use a mannequin and colored stickers to show where all the bruises and scrapes were. Mm -hmm. And it's covered. Like, blue was for bruises, and they're, like, on every part of her body. Red was for scrapes, and they're a lot on her face. He says this is a classic representation of child abuse. A fatal child abuse. Two cops, including Bradley. Both the cops are Mike and Mike. (laughs) So, the Mikes. This Um, is a classic example of when you give the nice guy a chance, and then he murders your kid. Mm -hmm. Or did he? So I'm sorry, if my three-year-old was covered in bruises and scrapes, I probably wouldn't leave her. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. If I weren't the one abusing her, I don't think I would leave her with the person who was. Exactly. Tina. Which is, comes, comes into play a little bit. So two cops, including, including Mike Bradley, arrested David. Bradley says everything at that point made David the top suspect. Yeah. Considering his reaction in particular, they only took Tina in for voluntary questioning, or sorry, voluntary, like to give a voluntary statement. But the energy, Tina says, shifted very quickly, and the deputies turned hostile towards her. David (laughs) had apparently accused her during questioning. He said he never saw anything, but that it must have been her, citing Tina's tendency to get worked up over the smallest things. And these are all tapes, like you can hear all these recordings in the docuseries. Jeannie, ever loyal, waited for 10 hours for Tina to be released before she realized that was not going to happen. She finally got a phone call from Tina saying they both had been arrested for suspected murder. Tina wasn't even allowed to be at the funeral, which, according to Jeannie, was a circus of people who didn't even know Amber but wanted to be involved. Others, believers in Tina's guilt, describe the funeral more as a community coming together to mourn the loss of a child. So again, it's like, it's like these that's two... That's giving like prayer chain energy. Yes. Yeah. Know? That's really like a gossip chain. Right. Mm-hmm. So it there's two perspectives. It's like community coming together or a circus. Sue Horn of Star News said it took no time at all for locals to form their opinions on Tina. They dug up stories of her childhood, the telekinesis, the potential fraud at best, or the demon possession at worst. This was Georgia... The Bible Belt, there was nothing worse than to be a single mother who potentially communed with the devil. (laughs) Enter Pete Scandalakis. (laughs) Meanwhile, I aspire (laughs) to be a single mother communing with with the devil. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Enter Pete Scandalakis, district attorney. He didn't Scandalakis? Yeah. Did they make, is that his code name for being involved with this? No, it's not. It's his actual name. He was district attorney at the time. I don't think he is at the time. Who would handle a really good scandal? Scandalakis, probably. (laughs) We should call that guy. He knows what he's doing. (laughs) Scandy did not buy the supernatural claims. Instead, he said that these stories were proof of Tina's manipulative side. She could make people believe she was powerful. Even Jeannie, he says, claimed Tina might become destructive if she had a psychotic break, that her, like, telekinesis would kick back up again. So Scandalakis called BS on this, too. More proof, he says, of the power of Tina's manipulation. If he's able to convince, or if she's able to convince people around her that she has, like, a dangerous power. So what, they think she manipulated David? Yeah. Well, that she thinks that she manipulated Jeannie into being a believer. 
do you want my thoughts right now so far? Do we want to sure. pause for what I think? Yeah. I will. Actually, I have a point where we'll pause. Okay, then, yeah. then I'll wait. I did leave a note here that it feels like, feels like a Shirley Jackson domestic horror. Like, we have always lived in the castle, mob mentality type stuff. Tina was taken to the mental hospital and medicated heavily. She just remembers of that time that she wanted the trial to just happen. She was certain that they wouldn't find her guilty. But it was a complicated case. Scandalakis <laughs> says the complexity is that neither witness claims responsibility nor directly says the other did it. Yeah. Tina was eventually charged with malice murder, felony murder, cruelty to children, and aggravated battery. All of this in Georgia was sufficient enough to seek the death penalty, which would be death by electrocution. Was David also charged or just Tina? Stop. Jimmy Barry was <sighs> her court-appointed lawyer. His record was that zero of his clients had received the death penalty, which is good, but you don't want to mess it up. So if but a we trial... We do know from the ones we've talked about that the court-appointed lawyers... Yeah. Sometimes they can really fumble the bag. Yeah. Respectfully. So, yes. If a trial looks like, like in this case, if a trial looks like you're definitely not going to win and you're going to ruin your batting average, you'll settle just to not mess up that average. Yeah. So October 24th, 1994, Barry and Scandalakis discussed getting the death penalty off the table. And Scandalakis says yes, suggesting a plea bargain. But Tina did not want to admit guilt. So she and Barry decided on an Alford plea, which is when you maintain innocence, but like admit that the evidence is overwhelming. So you're like, I get it. I'm not claiming I'm guilty. This is my least favorite part of our legal system. Yeah. Especially with the death penalty, because it's like you'll do anything to. Mm -hmm. Of course, you'd say you did something mm -hmm. you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not convinced that she didn't, but yeah, of course, you would say you did something so that you don't. Yeah. Well, she's penalty. she retains innocence. She's like, no, I'm not claiming I'm guilty. That's what the Alford plea is, is she wants to make sure she says, I so am innocent, but I understand the evidence is stacked against me and there's no bad. way of winning. Yeah. So, and then they're just like, okay, then we won't give you the death penalty. Right. So. That's so dumb. Now. That's <laughs> such a dumb thing. Yeah. Now I would love your opinions. Okay. Well, first of all, <laughs> you have a three-year-old child that's mm -hmm. covered in bruises, covered in cuts. Mm -hmm. Every single per person in her life is guilty in some way. They all know who, we don't know at this point. I don't know mm -hmm. who's abusing her, but they all do. Mm -hmm. You're telling me either of them is living in the house and they don't, aren't aware of what's going on. That's mm -hmm. insane. And also like the, the fact that Jeannie was like, oh, well, well, don't call an ambulance because she might have Child mm -hmm. Protective Services called on her. Reminder that this happened over four days. So the first injuries were April 10th. And then the death was April 14th. Yeah, because her brain probably. Well, I'm saying that, like, as far as I understand, there weren't injuries that Tina knew about or saw before four days prior to the death. So all of the bruises were new? From what I understand. Is that the at least the very first, like, injury that is mentioned that Tina even knows about is her falling. Well, so. She clearly didn't fall. Yeah. Obviously. You don't mm -hmm. get that many bruises from tripping. No. I mean, you can I mean, smack your head hard They're enough. like back of arms, front of arms, stomach. There was a lot on her stomach. And she's three. Like, you would see them. It's not like a teenager that would hide it from you. Yeah. Or 
court could hide it from you. Like there are three. Yeah. And I didn't hear about it in the docuseries, but one podcast did say there was also potential signs of like sexual assault. But I'm I'm not going to claim that that's for sure because the docuseries is the most like in-depth and it didn't mention that. Just one of the podcasts did. So when they called the police saying that it was a kid with child abuse, it was all new abuse. It wasn't it like, like signs of like old abuse. Uh-uh. At least that's like the only thing they mentioned. They mentioned like recent bruises and cuts. That. But. I don't know for sure. Yeah, I hate all of the adults involved in this. Mm-hmm. You know, in college when people would drink too much and the kids would be like, don't call 911 or take them to the hospital. Yeah. We might get in trouble. trouble. And then they die. And then they die. Yeah. And it's like, you're a guardian, a parent guardian mm-hmm. to a child. I don't care what your involvement was in it. Yeah. If they look like that, you're calling 911 or mm-hmm. driving to them to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's making me angry. What do you think about the telekinesis poltergeist stuff? Uh, Right now, I feel like it's bullshit. Mm -hmm. I think she's lying. Yeah. Possibly. It's not that I don't believe that people can be telekinetic, but But Tina's not looking too hot right now. Sorry, girl. She had apparently watched I'm ready for you to flip the script on me. I'm ready to change my mind, and I hope I do, but Mm -hmm. I'm not loving her right now. Yeah. I will say I don't have a solid super... I have, like, hunches. I think it's because when we're talking about her adoptive parents plus that weird psychologist, it's like she had so much influence and reason to make it up Mm -hmm. that it's, like, hard to... Mm -hmm. It's like if she didn't have any reason to lie about it, Mm -hmm. I would be much more willing to believe her. Mm -hmm. But it's like in the situation she was in... It mm-hmm. would make a lot of sense for a kid in that situation to come up with something, especially if she has parents who are like, their first reaction is to call a press conference about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry. If I was like, mom, I think that I'm telekinetic, my mom mm-hmm. would be like, that's great, sweetie. Yeah. And do nothing else. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Calling a press conference. It's very 1985, mm-hmm. whenever that happened. Yeah. So far, I think it's bullshit. So far, I think all of the adults involved were somehow responsible for Amber's death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, so far, everyone mentioned I kind of hate. Yeah. I hate all of them, mm-hmm. including Jeannie. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Jeannie wants to be seen as the girl's girl. Yeah. And I don't like her. Yeah. I'm sorry. If you're an adult and you're chaining your own ankle to a child mm-hmm. so that you can pee... Something's yeah. wrong with you, girl. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong with you. Yeah, and she said it like it was funny, cute. Like, teehee, it's so funny to it's weird. hold a child hostage and mm-hmm. videotape them and watch them 24-7 and not let them sleep alone. Right. Here's when I'm going into more bullet point style because okay, there's just go. a lot of stuff that kind of happens. So the two mics that I mentioned that were involved in mics like Michael's? interviews. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking Mike Raffone. Oh, no, like the the Mike Thomas and Mike Brown. Okay. They were involved in the conviction. They did have a reputation for fighting for justice. So they're just a couple people that were involved in the interviews and taking statements and stuff. They are important. We'll come back to them. For fighting for justice. Did they spread those rumors themselves? Sounds like cop propaganda. I'm feeling very very against everyone today. 
I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Yeah. So during the trial in particular, Jeannie drove to be at the courthouse when, well, it wasn't during the trial, but it was like when Barry was going to be, I think, because there wasn't technically a trial because she did the plea bargain. Yeah. And it was during that period of time. During that, Jeannie drove to the courthouse to be with Tina. Barry told her that there was no one there, like said, she's not here. We're not doing that right now. So that she couldn't be in there. She couldn't find Tina. So Tina signed the plea bargain. And there was a little, I was a little bit confused because um, Tina signed the bargain. It seems like it actually was a, like she pled guilty. Like they tricked her. Yes. That's what she claims. And that she didn't know what she was doing by doing the plea bargain. But Scandalakis says that's a lie. Barry says she, he didn't force her to do anything. So ultimately, she was sentenced to life in prison plus 20. So Scandalakis then looked at David. David had a trial. So he used the... So he was charged. He had a trial. Um, but what was he charged with? I'll get there. Wait a second. (laughs) So David, during the trial, used the not my child approach, arguing it was Tina that had the responsibility to seek medical attention for Amber. So his was more on Amber was neglectful unless uh, who did the original injuries. Okay, I have a question. I'm going to try not to be too annoying. I'm just getting really worked up about it. Did they like live together formally at this time? The way it was phrased is that she was living with him. So Amber lived with him. Yeah. In his place, from what I understand. So Tina was supposed to testify against him, but she told the truth that she'd never seen him hit her because she refused to lie, is what she claims. So when she's interviewed for this docuseries, she's like, I like, I just did not want to lie. I hadn't seen him hit her. The jury acquitted him on everything but cruelty, and he was given 20 years. Did she say she had seen evidence of him hitting her? Like, did she acknowledge that she had seen the bruises and stuff? Yeah, they. it seems like they both did because they knew that there was abuse, but they not, claim, didn't claim responsibility for it or blame the other officially. Hmm. But because she didn't, like, blame him during trial, he was acquitted on everything but cruelty, given 20 years, Tina feels her testimony helped him get away with murder. She, like, voices regret over that decision to not lie. Amethyst, Tina's cellmate, who was two months old when Tina was first locked up. Wait, what? So, Tina's in jail. Tina gets put in jail. So, then there's this docuseries. Her prison wife is born. Right. (laughs) Yes. So, there's this docuseries. And she mentioned she's like, I was two when she was locked up and I'm 30 now. Just to kind of like give an idea of like how long she's been in prison. Amethyst does not think she's guilty and encourages her to keep fighting. So, So Amethyst is 30 when she goes into jail. Yes. And Tina has been in jail for 30 years, basically. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> because it was like 19, pretty much exactly 30 years. Because it was like 1994, 95 that she was officially locked up. Yeah. So this is a current thing. Yes. Mm. So John Banning did a, a piece about photographing inmates to be like, they're not so different. Like it's a very normal kind of photograph 
of these people who are criminals to kind of yeah. be like the, the gap between us isn't that far. In this docuseries, he talks about how he got really interested in her because when he was talking to her, she was really interested in him, like showed more, are you, you know, like yeah. just like responsiveness and interest in his life. So that over here, Marty Tankliffe and Mark Howard were two people. Marty Tankliff was wrongly convicted and sentenced to 50 years to life for the murder of his mother, attempted murder of his father. Okay. And he was tricked into confessing. Mark Howard helped him get out of prison after two decades. It, like, took two decades because I think he took his case pretty soon mm-hmm. after he was imprisoned, after Marty was thrown in prison. So Marty went on to get an undergraduate and law degrees and taught a class with Mark to reinvestigate poten- potential wrongful conviction Kim cases. K. Yes. So the students in their class literally pick a case yeah. that they think is a wrongful conviction and try to get it undone as part of the class, which is interesting. Which is cool. So Mark says Tina's case. So I do think this happens more than we want to admit. Absolutely. Yes. Particularly, I'm, you know, people of color. Especially like particular. what you were saying, like, because they have records. Yeah. Like, they have motivations. The lawyers mm-hmm. have motivations. Yeah. To get people to do, yeah. take a plea. Yeah. Mark Howard says that Tina's case has all the hallmarks of wrongful conviction. So, three students, the girls, Lizzie Porterfield, Grace Parrott, and Sarah Jackma, they interview, so, the two police officers, the Mikes. Okay. And wait, are they in this class? Like recently? they're in this class. Yes, they this is like recent have years. picked her case. Okay, have gotten in touch with her. Say we want to fight for you because we think this and is they wrong. To interview the Mikes, the Eminem. Yes, Eminem. And they say in the docu series that they immediately felt a sense of like male judgment and sexism, and that it didn't necessarily bother them if she had actually killed Amber or not. So they also find, which was kind of left out of the information, that the injuries that caused the death occurred on David's watch, according to the medical examiner. So, so it's did like, they know what day those injuries happened? Was it the fall day? No. So Dr. Stephen Dutton was the medical examiner for Amber. Basically said that David's claim was basically that she was fine earlier that day and then suddenly started deteriorating. So Steve Dutton... Basically, it was like, that can't be true. That there was like a subdural hemorrhage. And it's unlikely that Amber spent three hours perfectly normal before deteriorating with this condition. Yeah. So that fatal injury, whatever it was that caused particularly the subdural hemorrhage, happened while Tina was at Jeannie's writing a book. So it was a brain bleed. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That was like, yeah, the final thing that um, did it. But... So Tina, according to this person, literally couldn't have been there during yeah. based on the timeline. So that's kind of a big thing on proving her innocence. Yeah. As far as the actual murder itself, obviously right. there's still issues with, you know, not reporting. Like it would be that. more like neglect than yes. murder. Failure to report, that kind of stuff. Right, yeah. which is still terrible, but yeah. not murder. Right, exactly. Not life plus 20 or <clears throat> death sentence and then pleading for life plus 20. Yeah. Scandalakis... Still think so. It's called Tina. I will Tina. never say scandalous again. Yeah. I will always say that's scandalous. Yeah. So this <laughs> team Tina developed with these women fighting for her yeah. to be free. 
it gains a lot of traction. That Jan Banning guy starts posting on social media. It gets your story really, really public, which yeah. is why, like, now there's this docu-series. There's a clip of... What's the docu-series on? Hulu. Oh, I'm gonna watch yeah. it. Yeah. It's really good. What's um, it called? Demons and Saints. Demons oh. and Saviors. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So there's a global kind of team fighting for her, publicizing her trial or her mistrial, wrongful conviction, whatever. She's had nine parole denials since being convicted. But another failure of the system, in order to get parole, you must admit guilt. And she still refuses to say she's guilty for something she didn't do. So then it had to have been a different, whatever she signed then couldn't have said that she was pleading guilty. Right. Yeah. So I'm not, yeah, that's where I was like, not sure if it was like, she actually did get the Alford plea or. It's not that common to get parole when you have life plus. Right. That's why they have the plus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think it's very common. So she requested parole, like to be considered for parole. And they just said no. Mm -hmm. Because she wouldn't be like, she wouldn't have the option for parole if she had life plus 20. You can't like well, no, that. she she requested you good behavior your way out of that. Yeah, because they expect you to admit guilt. Yeah, if she had admitted guilt, it may have been possible. She might have the possibility of parole. Yeah. Uh, from what I understand, huh. <laughs> I have to add from what I understand yeah. after every like legal thing because I'm like I don't know for I sure. I can't remember what episode I did that I was like I honestly don't know if this yeah, is true. I get really oh confused you were talking by it. about like if it's just a capital case. Yeah, yeah, I was really confused mm-hmm. by that, and I still don't totally understand it. Yeah, because well, there's all these things like this one type of plea that's yeah. like what the fuck is that? And then there's so many things that are like vary from state to state. The one thing that like with mistrials or mm-hmm. with like wrongful convictions, it's like. I get why people are so easily tricked. Yes. Because. And you see some footage of how these like police officers are talking to people and it's so manipulative. Yeah. It's like, one, they're scared. So they may just do it anyway and make guilt because they don't want to die. Two, it's just they have, there are so many cases of police officers manipulating people into false confessions. Yeah. And I see the side of like, they're doing their best to find the truth of something Mm -hmm. And that those tactics work with that. But I do feel like it's a There's been a lot of cases also with like young people. Yeah. Which I think was the Marty case. He was really young when he was uh, convicted. That case sounds Um, And like people with like learning disabilities Mm -hmm. and different stuff like that that have been like, it's just, you know, easy to get. Or it's an easy target. Yeah. And then they can close the case. Yeah. Yuck. Here's kind of the state of things now. Team Tina is still fighting for her innocence. Lizzie, Grace, and Sarah are still actively looking into her case. She has also been reconnected with her biological sister, and have they have grown close. Her sister claims that telekinesis runs in the family, so she still thinks that part of Tina's story is true, and that her mother, biological mother, and their grandmother could move objects, and then there's still, like, a painting of their biological grandmother that turns around on the wall sometimes. Interesting. Yeah. Jeannie has kind of taken on the role of, like, mother in a way with Tina. Scandalakis, Mark, and Mark are still convinced that Tina is manipulating everyone. They started a boy band. Right. On Team Tina. David... Again, did have a full trial and witnesses to testify his character. Tina never was able to get character witnesses because she didn't have a trial. Scandalakis. And you should see that. This is where I'm going to get biased. You should see this guy because he looks like a douche. I'm going to Google him. Yeah. He just looks like he likes Andrew Tate. <laughs> I just saw his him. LinkedIn just came up. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. 
Scandalactus. He's got a weird shaped head. Yeah. He is the most, the least calm when he's talking on this docuseries. So he's pretty much convinced Tina's scum. He doesn't say the word sociopath, but he acts like he thinks like Tina's a sociopath, claims the evidence is overwhelming. But even the medical examiner, like we said, claimed the cause of death happened when she was gone. Yeah. So Team Tina isn't arguing that she wasn't killed or abused. They're basically suggesting it was David, but Scandalakis kind of acts like they're trying to be like, no, but she wasn't killed. Like she's, he acts like they think that it wasn't a case of abuse or murder at all. And it's like, that's not true. Obviously she was murdered and abused, but yeah. not by Tina. Definitely not killed by Tina. She's not murdered because it wasn't like he, a as, blow to the head that immediately killed her. It was like something where she died later. Do what? Like where it was an injury where it took yeah, hours who, for her who to die. Do you? You just said someone said it isn't murder. No, no. I'm saying Scandalakis acts like Teen Tina oh, I see is what saying, you're saying it's not murder when Teen Tina isn't claiming that at all. They're saying it was David. Yeah, obviously. Basically. Yeah. Obviously, it yeah. was David. Mm-hmm. Um, one more question. Yeah. Where's David's biological daughter? I don't know. I don't even remember if it was a daughter. Like, his kid was hardly mentioned at all in any of this. so wild. Yeah. The people who are putting together this docuseries. Like she would have been home. Right. Right? Probably. Yeah. I don't know why she wouldn't have been. Yeah. It's weird that that kid wasn't mentioned. And wasn't even as a child still unless, somewhat of a witness. Unless they were like with their other parent or something. Right. But maybe. like. So some people on the. Who were doing research about all this and went to go get like photos and, you know, different files and stuff like that. Basically said that there's like an energy in Carrollton, Georgia about this case. Like everybody knows about it. Everybody clearly yeah, has an How do they feel about it? So I forget which person on the docuseries said this, but they went to go get some documents, I think from the library, like some public records. Mm -hmm. And the person who was like letting them in to go see everything was like, hell is too good a place for that woman. Locals are convinced she's guilty. They hate her. Yeah. So the medical examiner specifically said that it was, well, the time that David claimed the injury would have happened if he's saying he didn't do it would have been at least three hours before they were taken to the hospital. Emmy says that's not possible. There's no way that was the final, when the final blow happened. They got um, the girls, <laughs> capitalized the girlies, the three students, got <laughs> three stooges. The three stooges. <laughs> um, they went and got another Emmy to look at the evidence and to write a letter in support of their timeline that Tina wasn't there. And they also found inconsistencies with how Scandalac has approached Tina and David's cases. Scandalakis said one time that there's plenty of evidence to convict David, but later on he like said that wasn't the case. And Scandalakis, his language when he's talking about these girls says condescending. He said, okay, so he says a bunch of students at Georgetown University think it's unfair. That doesn't phase me at all. One, I was like, you sure about that? It seems to phase you, yeah, but you it was very demeaning. About it. Like these students. But then they do, they show an interview where they interview him because they're trying to get more evidence and he's like really nice to their face. I was like, talk about manipulative. Mm -hmm. They're still trying to get her out of prison. And that's kind of like where things stand right now. I always think these are interesting ones where it's like, she's still a bad person probably. She shouldn't be in jail for a crime she didn't commit. Right. But like, I always feel like it, like she's still, you know, probably not a great person. It's, again, we always talk about, like, the gray areas because, you know, you look at just 
her childhood and the people who potentially took advantage of her. I, Even if they did believe that she was really telekinetic, they I think still it's took wild advantage. that there's no claims of that psychologist abusing her. I know. she. Yeah, she never said anything about that. She just said she really cared about him. He was her savior. And then there's you know, no he way. sent her back home. There's no and way. And then exploited her for a book. Yeah. No way. But, like, think of, like, the psycho- psychological manipulation. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind he didn't abuse her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The manipulation for her to, as an adult, mm-hmm. not just say. Yeah. Had to have been intense. Mm-hmm. I have a few discussion questions. The first one is more about like, like this Georgia town in particular was convinced she was absolute utter evil. Yeah. And like we've just said, is like, she probably isn't the best person, but yeah. like she does. Or the best mom. I think we've both kind Obviously. of concluded based on this, like if we are to finally be biased for sure, for sure, that she didn't hit, make the final blow. She was not the murderer. No. So it also doesn't seem like she, well, I want to know why Jeannie's first thought was, well, I don't want them to call CPS on her. I think it's because she was, like, in low-income housing and, you know, like, there was just, like... been called before? Not that I understand, Because someone had told her that she might lose her daughter, right? Yeah. That was for... But that was because of the abusive husband that she had to leave. They were like, you need to get away from there or they'll come take her because you're remaining with this abusive guy. Yeah. It does sound like she neglected her kid. Mm Mm-hmm. Or at least put her at risk in put the hands of risk. an abuser. Yeah. I, I think, like, there is a certain level of sympathy I can have for someone mm-hmm. who has been in repetitive domestic violence mm-hmm. that she might not have had the skills or ability to remove her child. Right. And if she was very sad, and then it is ultimately her responsibility. Yeah. So it's kind of like I do have a small, small amount of sympathy for her in that regard. Mm-hmm. But like for the most part, your kid died because of this. My sympathy stops there. But there is gray area. Mm-hmm. I still feel like that's heartbreaking mm-hmm. for a mother. Yeah. The news in general picks a very black and white kind of like view mm-hmm. of things. For a soundbite or to get people to watch. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's content marketing. It's, like, what we do yeah. for our jobs. News stations are, lives are at stake. trying to get views. Yeah. So, like, I think they go with whatever story is the most shocking, the most mm-hmm. compelling. We've even learned this from, like, when we post our clips on social media from the podcast. Like, the most frustrating comments we've gotten are people who don't really have the capacity for the gray area. Yeah. And I think that that's, like, a truth Mm -hmm. of, like, the general public. So I I do think, like, with media, they're always going to do a very black and white take. Mm -hmm. That's why I like docuseries. Longer form coverage tends to, like, have the space for... And I think docuseries often are intending to be, like, this is confusing. To show multiple angles. And that's kind of, like, it's still an agenda in a way. Yeah. As far as, like, the piece of content that they're making. But it's an agenda that I think is more beneficial than, like, the black and white agenda of media. I think, like, a lot of times with women in particular in the media, it's, like, usually she's crazy. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, oh. Yeah. The the vitriol that Scandalacus had when he talking about her, I think, is a good example. Like, it's not media, but that feels like the extreme take that, like, media, particularly, like, local media in this area. It also um, says a lot about, like, you have to be the perfect mom. Yeah. 
like for him to be like, well, it wasn't my responsibility. It's like you have a child, a three-year-old child living in your home. It is your responsibility. They're in your care. Mm -hmm. Even if you're just their babysitter. Right. It's your responsibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for him to like say that and everyone just accept it, it really shows like the pressure that's put on moms. Yeah. To be perfect. I don't, Mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like she was doing a great job. She's probably doing the best she could. I don't Mm -hmm. think that excuses it. It's amazing how quick people are to just demonize a woman for being flawed. Mm -hmm. Especially like that they pull up her childhood, which was so clearly abusive. Yeah. And have that as like, which I do think like the lying, I don't like her. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't like her. Yeah. I find it really interesting that teenage girls are often the center of poltergeist, Mm -hmm. both in reality and in fiction. Yeah. And whether they're faking or they're not, whether they're manipulated or they're not, whether they're, you know, it's, I think of like the witch trials when like people like these young girls were convincing people that someone so-and-so is a witch. Yeah. And maybe they genuinely believed it to some extent. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe Tina genuinely believed to some extent that she was, you know, you can be delusional (laughs) about your own ability, even if it's like if she was faking everything, she could still be convinced that it's real. Yeah. Psychologically. So... Especially Um, with that many people giving her attention for it. If she had any kind of, like, psychosis. Yes. Having that much validation for it could right. be really bad. Yeah. And just validation in general, attention in yeah. the middle of an abusive family. Yes. I do think like it's not surprising that the first thing every single person said was prove it. Like no one believes women. Mm-mm. And just the fact that like she's saying she's abused by her foster brother and they're like, we don't believe you Mm -hmm. shut up even david in the case it's like people were so quick to believe his side of things even Mm -hmm. though all the evidence points to him it's i think one of the more frustrating parts of being a woman right and even when you have so much evidence i feel like people are so much quicker to believe that you're crazy Mm -hmm. or that what you're saying is completely invalid or that you're just like a joke right i think healthy skepticism is good I think I would want proof for something like that. But mm-hmm. I also think like with a child, the way that they kind of like swarmed her for proof when it's like, why does it even matter? I think I kind of have like a just leave it alone mentality about it. Yeah. About like, the telekinesis. Yeah. Stuff. It's like, yeah. who cares? Not me. Yeah. I'm like, uh, wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> crazy <laughs> is true. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah. I don't feel like I need to like... I don't know. I almost feel like the frenzy and the proof and the getting to the bottom of it. And is it true? Like, yeah, well, everyone had an agenda. Yeah, it feels like that probably made things worse. If she was lying, that would make things way worse. Yeah. Even if she wasn't lying, it would encourage you to exaggerate. There were needs that were not being met with her. Oh, yeah. That she absolutely, whether it was real or not with the telekinesis, was trying to get met if I were to assume it's not real and it was mainly because of that, it's just like the extremes that severely, you know, abused, disregarded children would go to, to get those needs met in a form, uh, like a weird form, you know, any, in any way. Even just thinking through like a kid, you have foundation problems. Things are falling off shelves in your house. A kid goes, I did that with my mind. Yeah. And your parent goes, oh, my God. 
oh my God, they freak out about right. it. Right. Yeah. Even if you like, there's a grain of truth in your brain where you do think you did it, and then you have an adult validate you immediately, and yeah, then they then overblow you get to Lulu. it. Yeah, you as a kid would be like, I did that. Yeah. And I think that's where the Scandi guy, his reaction frustrates me so much because he is so convinced that for everything, both the telekinesis and like the event, well, he thinks murder of the child is like a sign that she is a terrible, terrible manipulate, like manipulative right, she's like a sociopath. person. Yeah. Everything was purposeful. Everything was conscious. And yeah. it's like, you totally disregard the fact that like that kind of stuff can happen where you become delusional yeah. enough to believe, genuinely believe that she's yeah. telekinetic, you know? Yeah. Or that many of the moves to publicize it, prove mm-hmm. it, have those psychologists come to their house was from her adoptive parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't coming from her. Mm-hmm. So it's like, who is more manipulative? You already have a power dynamic of a right. parent-child. Who's being manipulative in that situation? Mm-hmm. I would say the parent. Yeah. I want to be telekinetic so that I don't have to get up to get things. That was always, I think, when people would ask, what superpower would you want? I think it was, that was always mine was telekinesis. It would be convenient for mm-hmm. the lazy girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do think the pulling the lamp down on herself is a little like... There are more believable telekinesis stories out there. Yeah. It was weird, though, that like the siblings were saying it runs in the family. Yeah, that kind of gives me pause. Yeah. And I say that about my like, family when we, we always right. say that we're like connected or, to the paranormal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would love to interview like their childhood friends and be like, did they say this growing up too? Like, yeah. is this some, or, or was did they just make she it just up latched on? And you're like, oh yeah. my God, that was. I also have a thought. Okay. Because I was looking at pictures of her. Mm-hmm. She is not like super conventionally attractive. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when we're talking media, if she had had been more petite, had a softer feature, been mm-hmm. more like doe-eyed, Eileen Mornos was kind of the same way mm-hmm. where neither of them are like unattractive. Right. But they don't have like a super feminine look. And I think those women are much easier in the media to portray as being bad. Yeah. Crazy. Well, yeah. And we talked, I think it was the Eileen Mornos. No, it was, Um, I think it was the- Fuckable it was is a lot more important. Love was on that we were media. talking about. Yeah. Or just, it's been a theme in all of these things where it's like the masculine energy. It's like people attribute crime and evil and stuff. Yeah. As a masculine trait, go figure. <laughs> and so when like these, the women are more masculine, masculine I think it's looking. much more like people believe that, oh yeah, she must have done it. I also think like you talk often about the women as needing to be rescued. And I think when you have that look, mm-hmm. people believe so quickly that you are manipulated by a man or you're yeah. being used where I feel like women who have a more masculine appearance, mm-hmm. it's like, well, why would a man use you for something? Yeah. You're not fuckable enough. Yeah. What would they be getting out of it? Mm-hmm. And I think that that, ch- that impacts our perception much more yeah. than people want to admit. It's similar to the clothes, you know, what were you wearing? Argument. Who would rape you? If you were you? covered, then no one would want to, you know. It's like, that's not true. Which is astounding. I also think it's interesting in kidnapping cases of young girls. Yes, it's always when they are pretty. Angelic white girls. Blonde. And it's terrible to say, but desirable. Yeah. Even for very young, young, young girls. 
And then there are so many people who are like the number of particularly the missing native women that coverage. never get. Yeah. And people are so obsessed with. And vir- virginal because like it's virginal, also sex workers. They never girls. get the same amount of like press I, coverage, if any. I remember when Elizabeth Smart was found, there was this obsession with she wasn't a virgin anymore. Ew. And like they weren't saying it like that on the mm-hmm. news. But I remember I think Barbara Walters did like a special on her where they went to her house. And I remember that being like a huge part of the story when they when she first started talking to news outlets. And she's um, spoken about that yeah. since because she was in a very conservative religious home and mm-hmm. like how she coped with that. It was a huge point of interest. And I don't think anyone would have cared had she not been so beautiful, which is so disgusting. Yeah. But I feel like it's like this weird sexualization of crimes mm-hmm. against women and crimes committed by women. Yeah. Big thumbs down from me. Yeah. It is maddening. I'm in a weird loop these year, years, recent years, where it's like it is maddening when you start thinking about no matter what you're doing as a woman, being fuckable is always important. Mm-hmm. And it you can't win because you get more attention, but also less respect. And I think it's a lot more pervasive <laughs> in society from both men and women than we care to admit. Mm-hmm. Is it Penny? They just did the two series on her candy candy yes one of the focal points about that whole case Mm -hmm. is that she was so beautiful yeah and that the other woman that she killed wasn't and because of that the perception was that she wasn't as likable yeah and she like brutally murdered this woman who was at least in the portrayals and the articles i read was just really sweet a little awkward candy didn't get the same public image Mm -hmm. as like an Eileen Bornos, as a Tina Resch, because she had this Mm -hmm. beautiful, fuckable, desirable aesthetic to her. Yeah, it was less a how, it was more of a, how could she do this? Oh my gosh. Or what did that woman do? Man, she must be, she's evil and disgusting. Yeah, what did that woman do to... Yeah, it's a fascination more than in a almost fetishistic way versus a really immense level of disgust that like Eileen and Tina got. Like weird to me to see them portrayed in like fictionalized versions of like of their stories Mm -hmm. the way that like jessica beale playing candy is portrayed where they're like she's very like sexualized Mm -hmm. there's portrayals of eileen warnos where she's like disgusting yeah you know Mm -hmm. they almost make them look like dirty yeah unkempt yes unkempt Okay. On that note. <laughs> rapid fire questions. I okay. only have three. They're just silly. Uh, mm-hmm. What's one food you would eat every day for the rest of your life? Mac and cheese. Yeah. Or ramen. Mine would definitely be a carb of some kind. I feel like it could be toast for me, mm-hmm. which is boring, but like yeah. I don't see myself getting tired of toast. But there is so many options for toast. So many options. And that's why I think I'm changing my answer to ramen is because there's so many different ways to... Mm-hmm. There's cup of noodles, which I love. There's fancy ramen, which I love. There's mm-hmm. different types of ramen. I think mine might be toast because I can do sweet and savory. It also goes with a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So I could eat that every day and yeah. be happy. Mm-hmm. Okay. If we didn't need water, I came up with this question. And it's showing unhinged qualities <laughs> in my brain. If we didn't need water to survive, what's the one li- liquid you would choose to replace it? If it didn't even exist. Water doesn't exist. Okay. We're okay. 70% a different liquid and you have to drink it every day. What would it be? Mine would be juice. I think like an orange juice or an apple juice. Uh-huh. Yeah, I could drink orange juice Couldn't every day. Couldn't be soda. Ginger ale if it was a soda. 
If it had to be a soda, it'd be ginger ale. If it had to be a soda, it would be ginger ginger ale. I couldn't do like a sport drink. No, I hate Gatorades. Honestly, all of them. It would be nice. Beer! If, if coffee gave you like the hydrated yeah. feeling that water gives you, that would be nice. Yeah. I think mine would be beer. Without, obviously, if it's something we would need in our bodies, if not it made all the... feel good. Yeah. yeah. I still think mine would be juice. Because I feel like the taste of beer, even like if I drink too much beer, but maybe that's because it makes me feel icky. Yeah. And if it didn't, I I'd would be enjoy beer. It. I'd be having breakfast beers. Yeah. And I if it didn't intoxicate me. Two IPAs last night and a white <laughs> wine. I felt fine in the evening. When I woke up this morning, I was like, I don't feel like my best. And then I took a really weird poop. <laughs> You know, something happened. Yeah. I also, the food I ate immediately beforehand was like not the brightest. It wasn't my best thinking and decision making that I've ever done. I had leftover pizza and then like a half a bag of Takis. Yeah. So my tummy was already. Pizza and beer is really what fucks me up. That was when I had my worst like IBS where I had to like lay down on the floor of a spirit Halloween was because I was having a lot of That's one of the saddest places you could possibly lay down. Yeah. In the dressing room. Yeah. That's a sad place to lay down. It was rough. Something about a spirit Halloween dressing room, like I feel like people fuck in there. Yeah. The employees probably. Of all the like of all the dressing rooms, I feel like people put on costumes and fuck in a spirit yeah. Halloween, you know? Mm-hmm. And like they probably don't even care. No. That's the vibe it gives. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yours is beer, mm-hmm. mine is juice. Mm-hmm. What's this is the sweet one. What's one intention you would set for your bestie? each other for the new year. I feel like this year for you was the immediate aftermath, the rough situation. Yeah. That I think you, I mean, like you said, it's been also the hardest year and the best year at the same yeah. time. And I hope that 2024 is a year where like the light at the end of tunnel is reached, at the end of the tunnel is reached. I feel like it's yeah. been like a, you know, it's a healing, it's a processing, it's a coping kind of year. And I hope that you come out on the other side of that tunnel and that it becomes a year of more peace, yeah, feeling settled yeah, and enjoying the life you have here without the kind of heaviness that yeah. this immediate aftermath has given you. Thanks. That's nice. Mine is almost exactly the same. <laughs> I feel like this was just a year where a lot of like difficult realizations came up for you. I watched you like have fun and have joy and have friends and have like great things happen. Also, like I feel like we kind of skirted over you like losing your job. Yeah. <laughs> starting grad school in a very short amount of time. Like it was yeah. kind of like a lot. And I watched you enjoy a lot of it, but also like really struggle to like, like how you said, like kind of have peace through it, where I think it was like a trying very hard to get through it kind of time for you. Mm-hmm. And even though there was good stuff, like I would really love for you to have a season of life where it doesn't feel so hard and you can kind of work through some of the stuff you've started thinking about and like have it not be so difficult and so like painful, you know, I would love to see that for you this year. A little more like just, just joy that you can really like bathe in. Yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) where it's like just all good and not like this is good, but also hard. Yeah. I giggled when you were giving me mine because you were turning in your chair and Luna's just sitting. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> just dead in her eyes. <laughs> uh, that was a nice way to close it out. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, we don't have any new Patreon subscribers to shout out because we literally recorded episode 12 yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, no one, no one has signed up in the 24 hours yeah, since we recorded it, the last episode. Give us episode. some more to shout out in the next one. Yeah, subscribe to our Patreon for $3 just to support us. It's a small investment. That goes a long way. Mm-hmm. It's $6 to get access to the videos. So subscribe to Patreon. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok at madwomaninthattic.pod. You can go to our, our website, madwomaninthattic.com. One of these days, you're going to say that with confidence. I'm getting really, I. it's getting there. I say it with confidence, but then I always look at you and I'm like, was that right? I don't know. I couldn't... <laughs> Couldn't be me to remember what our website is. <laughs> Madwomaninthattic.com. Go there. You can also have a link to message us or email us um, if you have any episode ideas, if you have stories thoughts on episodes, stories to tell. Cult stories, ghost stories. Like if you're if you're telekinetic, tell us. Yeah, please. And, and it with your permission, you can tell us if you don't want us to share it, but with your permission, if you send us the story, we'll share it. And anything else you want to share with us, mm-hmm. um, we love to gab with the listeners. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. Yeah. We hope that you are enjoying the new year. Yes. I hope you got kissed on the mouth on New Year's Eve mm-hmm. by the most beautiful person you've ever met in your life. Yeah. And that you didn't set resolutions. I hope you're not stressed out about your goals and that things are going easy, breezy, beautiful. I hope that for us, too. Yeah. (laughs) Dear God, yeah. Dear God. (laughs) Please take me off your strongest social list. (laughs) Thank you. The meme that's like, it's just an email. (laughs) I have been on the strongest soldier list for far too long. How do I keep getting on the trials and tribulations email list? Yeah. Unsubscribe. Yeah. I'm on the easy breezy track from now on. Mm Ho, 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 ho. Bye. Bye. Love ya. Love ya. Did you see the video Beard sent us that was like, I didn't ship my pants this year. And I was like, well, <laughs> I, did. I did that one time. So that both inside Yeah, I did. I shit my pants. No girl would have walked to dance with a guy who went and shit his pants. <laughs> we were on the same. That brain cell was firing on all cylinders. <laughs>